Well, as you say, like legitimizing the music to some extent. I mean, vinyl clearly is not the only way to legitimize your music. Yeah, no, um, I know. But, and that's a kind of an elitist but, thing to say. But yeah, impact. yeah. But it does feel like, you know, vinyl or it didn't happen. It, to me, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr, where we talk about the art and culture of running an independent record label. And today is an exciting episode. It's one of our, another one of our industry insider episodes where instead of talking to a record label, we talk to someone who's inside the music industry. And today I'm talking to my friend, Paul Miller from a company called Precision Pressing. And we're talking about the current state of vinyl as we're recording this now. Now, if you've ever been involved with pressing vinyl for your record label, or if you're an independent artist, or if you work at a record label and you work in vinyl, or even if you're just a vinyl collector, you know that the vinyl industry has been going up and up and up, but there's also been some ups and downs when it comes to manufacturing, specifically with lead times, which means how long it takes to make this product. You remember we talked about this last year with another company. We always are revisiting this subject every couple of years because it's constantly changing. And so many factors and so many actual physical elements and hands go into making records that when something in the supply chain is affected, then it affects the whole process. So today we're chatting with Precision Pressing to find out where we're at today. And I have my own experience with them in, and I talk about this in the episode, of how I had a record that came out of nowhere and was made really quickly, and I decided to press it on vinyl as fast as possible. And these guys at Precision got me the record in like two and a half months. Now, don't hold them to that lead time. I have no idea what their time frame is right now, but I was blown away. And I actually reached out to them because they're friends of mine. They've been supporters of the podcast since day one. I've done half a dozen vinyl pressing projects with them over the past uh, six or seven years. And I reached out to them. I said, listen, we're doing these like, we're looking for sponsors for the show. It's a new thing we're doing. And I am like an evangelist for free right now of precision pressing. And I know a lot of other labels are in our community just because of my experience recently with them was unreal. And so they were kind enough to sponsor um, this month's ep uh, episodes, including today's episode. Of course, it's a little meta, a little weird that they're sponsoring their own episode, but we're talking about vinyl. We're not talking so much about precision pressing, but I do want to give a shout out to them and say thank you to them for supporting our community and supporting the podcast. And you can learn more about them by going to precisionpressing.com. And I know you're going to learn a ton in today's interview. Well, I, I'm going to get into that because I think we are going to get into some of the changes and stuff. But here's what I want to talk about, because when we're talking about like vinyl, everything is about timelines and as it should be, because when for our audience, we're record labels and we are dealing with timelines and we're trying to get better at, at dealing with timelines because we have this like, you know, this pinnacle date of a release date, which is so important, yet not really that important. But anyhow, we, we're dealing with all these timelines. The reason why I actually sent you an email about three or four months ago to do this was because of this like bizarre, out of body, out of this universe experience I had with your company, which was my last record, which came out of nowhere. It was just this fun exercise of, I wrote these songs in a weekend and I thought, I wonder if I could record them really quickly whilst I was working on another record. And I ended up writing and recording this album in 10 days in March. And I had the master sent to you guys 10 days, I think 11 days after 
I had started writing the song. So in 11, from, from the 11th day, the songs didn't exist 11 days earlier. I sent you the masters. Wow. This is in March, middle of March. I ended up getting the record from you guys, two different color variants, clear and splatter, uh, five days before the album came out in June. So March, mm-hmm. April, May, and and June. So about three and a half, no, not March, because it, it was uh, the middle of March. So it was mostly just April, May, June. So it was about two and a half to three months. How mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. possible? Like that blew my mind. It came in my right. hands before the release day. It blew my mind. I was telling everybody about it <laughs> because not, yeah. l- not six months earlier, everyone was like, Lead times are now 13 months, 14 months, 18 months. So what mm-hmm. happened there? I like to think it was just because I'm a, a VIP. So, but please. Well, certainly there were some red carpets we rolled out for, <laughs> for all of, you know, for all the cutting and plating work and everything else for you. Um, aside from you being a very important person, the industry has just gone through a couple of, you know, cartwheels since we last spoke. And, um, most recently, I mean, you know, we're getting out of the pandemic to some extent. Obviously, it, it's ongoing, but, um, you know, I'll just sort of use the sort of like rough Please. green post tense yeah. of this conversation. Um, uh, you know, it felt like every day was quicksand for us during the pandemic because everything was just sort of like shifting and moving under our feet. Uh, all of the raw materials we needed for vinyl, like let's take the compound, the PVC compound used to make vinyl. Um, Basically the whole industry gets it from overseas. Well, let's say 90 to 95% of it comes from overseas, which means it was arriving on this continent via, uh, you know, ocean freight. Mm -hmm. And it was a really well-known story over the pandemic that shipping containers were a disaster, you know, that they would um, supposed to, let's say they were supposed to show up in five to six weeks Sometimes they would show up in 10 to 13. There'd be nothing we could do about it. And that's because, you know, the whole world essentially switched from flying things over by air to ocean. So Mm. there was just, that was just one more sort of bottleneck that we were experiencing on the logistical side of making vinyl. So we'd go to make yellow records and it would be like, man, how about, how about green? You know, (laughs) Uh, you know, like it would be those sorts of situations where we were just getting, you know, whiplash from all the various sort of supply chain problems that everyone was dealing with. But then those dried up. You know, um, and when those dried up, you know, it meant that we could resume normal operations and we got through those bottlenecks. And that's not just precision. That was basically the whole industry. You know, we were all dealing with like those material problems and shortage too. you know, where like we would order board to make record jackets and it just wasn't available. And there was all kinds of staffing issues and stuff. I mean, all that stuff is now well in the rearview mirror. And so no one is work, no one is dealing with that in today's environment of making vinyl. So things have just radically changed. It went from being a functional environment to a dysfunctional environment back to a functional environment. So, you know, it took a few months for that to work itself through. But now that we're there, um, things are much quicker. Mm-hmm. And so the turnarounds, whereas, you know, they used to be something like five to six months, and that was us. I mean, we're a big plant. We have, you know, 35 record presses. That's, you know, the um, that makes us, you know, a, 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 a very large, if not the largest record pressing plant in North America. Um, most plants will have between, you know, like two to five record presses, uh, right? So, you know, essentially we, we just invested in tons of firepower over the pandemic because there were so many record labels 
um, pushing us for more, considering that no one could get vinyl made in an appropriate time scale. So anyway, we emerged from the from the pandemic with you know lots of record presses, lots of capacity. And when we got through those bottlenecks, I mean, everything just started to kind of like come back to like a more clockwork way of doing things. And that's 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 where we are now. That's good to know. And were you hopeful for how things were looking like things were looking positive before the pandemic? Is that not true? Well, positive just in like, just uh, in the light. In sorry, this, in, in lead times. And, and yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, you know, when we started, it was it was eight weeks. Mm-hmm. And then it just kept ballooning, you know, um, every couple of months was like a, you know, um, a fresh exhale into the balloon where it would just yeah. sort of expand. It would become 10 weeks, 12 weeks, 15 weeks. Um, and yeah, now it's like one of those return to normalcy type of conversations, except, you know, things are sort of, I don't know about permanently different, but, you know, it's sort of like a shade of the past with like a newer sort of like, um, a reality, I would say. I mean, you know, one big change too is that um, the volume just exploded um, between 20, 2020 to 2022. Yeah. Um, and there's like a correction now because naturally the environment is different. Like people's physical realities and experiences are different. We're no longer at home, you know, um, smashing the purchase button on things that we can experience. We can now go outside, right? Yeah, and that's right, not, that's right. not a good thing now. But yeah, like I think the volume has changed too. And so it's no longer, you know, a sort of like devastating treadmill run. Now it's just kind of like, it's almost like a normal industry, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's so important for our people because, and, and even for my project that I was started off talking about is that I, it was a whole, it was a project that was based in spontaneity. And so the idea of, me being able to send it to the pressing plant and then actually have the record within a couple of months right on the the release day it was all part of the excitement for it and part of even the story and the narrative behind it if in the old days i probably that was march i still wouldn't have had the record in my hands today and i'm over that record i'm thinking of something yeah. else so it actually really impacted people's creativity not not to say even even of course their their income but for a lot of artists it was that record that just I just got in my hands, it's been out for a year. I mean, that's kind of a problem. Yeah, I've been thinking about that too, actually, with uh, rap music, because mm-hmm. I think there was some Billboard article floating around talking about how um, like rap and hip hop doesn't have the same success <laughs> on vinyl that some other genres do. Yeah, And I think some of that is like this kind of the spontaneity you're talking about. Right. I think that there tends to be more of a culture of like, let me quickly like hop on this song and remix it and like respond to that song. And, you know, there's just like a much quicker pace yeah. um, to like, you know, like, um, uh, I guess like chart success or whatever. Yeah. And so, you know, it's kind of like, well, maybe rap and hip hop, maybe part of the reason it's not as successful on vinyl is because of those longer lead times. Like what actually would it take to um, like as, as far as a number of weeks to make a record for that to actually work really well. So um, now that we have all this firepower and stuff and the, and, and the volume is lower than it was over the pandemic, we're thinking, okay, well, like, what do we, what do we do with this? Yeah. That's maybe a good point. One of the things is like, how do we actually bring those turnarounds down even more so that there can be more spontaneous creation that ends up on vinyl? So, I love that. Yeah, anyway, that's, I love that. That's I, I appreciate right you thinking about that because that's true for so many, you know, it's true for so many different 
um, genres, hip hop for sure. I mean, Kanye West is kind of notorious for, um, you know, allegedly tweaking mixes, you know, re-uploading them to iTunes the night before that kind of stuff. So yeah, I, I you know, back then it would, the album would have to gestate for a while before he was comfortable to press it to vinyl. So I can totally see that being the case. Interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting example. And when I thought of too, um, I wonder what that turnaround would need to be. Four weeks, six weeks, maybe something in that kind of region in order for people to be able to like, you know, capture the moment and have the music be released when it's still in conversation. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That would be a nice turnaround time to get to. And and, and actually I, I think a lot of it is is um is the print mm. because you're making a record. You know, it takes about two weeks to do the metal work, meaning the cutting and the plating and the test pressings. Um, the pressing itself, I mean, you know, we can make 800 records on a shift and there's, for, for, for a single press, um, an automatic press. And so, you know, if you can do 75,000 units a day, like we can, I mean, actually the pressing time is not the impediment. I mm. think it's the print. Okay. You know, so we... We have an internal print shop and we're adding machinery um, so that we can really try and dial that part of it in. Because I think if we can like get the print down to, you know, um, like 10 days or less, then I think we could really run make some magic happen with turnarounds overall. Well, there's also just so many key players too when when they're making a big record. And it's what we talk about on the show all the time. And And like you're saying, I mean it's not just the manufacturing, but it would be the decision-making on the artwork and the jacket and making sure people are credited. It's one thing to have the masters fly out of the studio from Pro Tools via we transfer to you guys in a few seconds, but then in order for it to look good on retail shelves, there's a lot of professionals that I think have to get involved. Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, if we were to look at the number of issues that arise from audio versus art, I think that like, you know, art and print. Um, it sounds weird for a record pressing plant to say this, but I mean, I think that like, you know, a lot more resources um, need to be put in on on the troubleshooting side when it comes to art and print. And it's not just the print itself, the die cutting and folding gluing. It's the things you're talking about, about um, um, getting past art approvals because, oh, no, I spelled the basis name wrong for the third time and yeah. he'll quit if I do yeah. this again. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> or like, or, or or even actually, when it comes to um, labels reissuing their own material, sometimes those like assets are lost to time, mm -hmm. and it tends more to be on the art side. So yeah, like That's... artwork and print, I think are a very important challenge to overcome. I think you um, said that. I think you said to, that last time we talked uh, that yeah. that the issues, especially with yeah. indie artists, was it was more in the art files, something not lining up or not using the template properly. And with with vinyl, there's so much more, there's so many pieces, right? When I'm sending art off, I'm sending two sides for the labels. I'm sending the the front and back, as well as the spine, which is usually one piece, but they're all kind of individual in their own way. And then that's just for the absolute basics. If you're doing an inner sleeve, things get pretty complicated. So there's a lot of files. It's not just, a lot of people just think the album cover, but there's a lot of pieces to it. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're starting um, a small run program that focuses on 100, 200, and 300. And it's for everybody, but the person we have in mind is someone who doesn't have any experience with vinyl. 
Um, and so we're mapping out a new workflow on the website to place the order to specifically guide you just to the templates that you need and to have yeah. a nice sort of like appealing graphic showing how things fit together. Um, I think the education on the um, on the art side is something that we should be really invested in because, yeah, I mean, like it is a challenge yeah. um, and um, can result in slowdowns if um, we don't have the right ingredients provided to us. Like we, like our, 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 our team is not like sort of by, you know, in a binary sense, like just rejecting files if, if they don't work, right, like right. we'll try to nudge it into place and make suggestions and point them out when we send the proof. But yeah, you know, the, yeah. again, the, the art side is, um, needs a lot of consideration. Well, I have a, I have a background in design. I'm, I'm comfortable with Photoshop and InDesign and all of these tools. I've pressed vinyl many times. I've made cassettes and CDs many times and I'll, I'll always make a mistake. I'll always forget something on a layer. I'll always do something too small or too big. I always forget about CMYK, you know, and that's coming from me who's done it a few times. So it is, it, it like, it's so funny, you know, we're having this conversation, we need to move on, but the audio files is like, oh yeah, 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 that part's fine. <laughs> it's right, right. It's just vinyl. It's just the vinyl. Yeah, don't worry about easy. that. Yeah. Uh, right. Let me ask you, you're talking about these short runs. I'm kind of curious. I want to hear a little bit more about them because of this issue um, where I see a lot of pressing plants getting into major releases and it makes me feel insecure. I've talked to you about this before. It makes me feel insignificant. I'm not saying that you've ever made me feel this way or that my rep has right. ever made me feel this way. And 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 people love to write about this online. Um, I, I know when there's this, I just feel like there's this issue when, when there's an issue with my press and I have to call my rep or email my rep and I'm doing 200 copies. And I know that you're also doing 200,000 copies for Taylor at, for, for each color, you know what I mean? And it, I just feel like, uh, I'm not important mm. to you guys as a client. Um, and again, mm. I'm not saying you've ever made me feel that way. It's just how I feel. And yeah. I think a lot of people in our community feel that. Do you get where that comes from? Yeah. And I like, I don't know the right words to convey the sentiment that it's totally not how it goes. Okay. Like, first of all, there's just completely separate teams for the major label side and the indie side. Okay. Like we have like our indie team is like 25, 30 people. I mean, some of them split their time on both sides of the fence, like in graphics or whatever. Sure. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, it's almost cleaved, right? That there's the major label schedule that needs to happen accordingly. And then there's the indie schedule that needs to happen accordingly. And they don't really clash mm. that much. Uh, you know, um, also like, I, I, I feel like, you know, all props to Universal and Warner, like, you know, they're definitely an important relationship of ours. Um, they're not walking around telling people to use us. They're not sharing records that we've made for them on social media and, Interesting. you know, sort of during like community around it, you know, I mean, like we, we, we built the website to talk to the indies thinking the majors, they are not really that interested in our storytelling capacities through the website. But like, if you can connect with like the smaller artists, it kind of makes everything work um, across the board, you mm. know, like, if the website tools and the portal and, you know, uh, like our communication style, if it works with, for the person who is, um, 
doesn't make a lot of records or never made records before, um, then it it means that you know um, for the people that that are that are used to the process that the tools that we've built will work for them too. And like just getting back to the point of like you know if we make a record for you and it's two hundred pieces, um, you're so much more likely to like share that with your friends and talk. You know, people in more independent communities are just naturally sort of like sharing information and resources, you know, experiences. And so like, I don't know, like arguably, I think like as far as the relationship impact that we would have in the broader industry, like the indies are really the ones that are going to dictate that. Wow. I really actually, I find that so interesting and that's so great to hear. And, you know, it's one thing for you to say, no, 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 no. Indies are important to us, but the proof you've just given evidence, the fact that you're right. I mean, there's just no way that any of those major artists are going on social media, even holding up a test pressing, let alone talking about, um, you know, where I got this pressed, you know, so that make that makes total sense. And then of course, all of the tools that you have, again, the majors are probably not using your quote generator on your website. So that's, that's such a great point because I was, I was always worried, you know, at that 80, 20 rule where it's like, 80% yeah. of your revenue comes from 20% of your customers and probably right. 80% of your problems come from people like us not knowing what we're doing. So um, I, I'm very I'm very pleased. I think a lot of us will be pleased to hear that. <laughs> Comforting. I, in our last conversation, we talked about my previous company, Samo, yep. where we were yep. Yep. almost exclusively working with the Indies. And then, you know, um, <clears throat> when the vinyl boom really started to take off, like, the indies just kept getting, you know, chomped up and spat out. And I, I just don't think I've ever forgotten that. I think it's pissed me off. Yeah. And like, I just, I just like won't let it happen at a record plant that I have more responsibility yeah. over. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I just spend a lot of time thinking about how to develop the indie side of things because I feel like it, it is, it does become very informative for other decisions that we make and various departments and things like that. Well, and I know you, and I know you're a fan of indies. I know you're a fan of in, indie releases. And so you you don't want that to go away in the same way I don't want that to go away. You know, we don't want it. We don't want to only help the majors succeed because then we would lose out on some of our favorite releases. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, uh, who doesn't want to work stuff that they... That's right. Um, ...ran themselves in? I mean... Yeah, we want to be part of the community, right? So yeah, I last time we talked, I'll ask you this after we stop recording. But last yeah. time we talked, um, I was asking you about some of your favorite labels and favorite artists that you would like go after. Uh, I'll ask you about right. that again because it's so fun. I would totally do the same thing. I'd be like, "Come press with me, so that I can take home, I can steal a test pressing of your record." <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's let me let me ask you about we're still talking about indies here. Let me talk to you about quantities because okay. somebody in our community a long time ago, and again, please please tell us a little bit about this short run system you you have coming because um, somebody a long time ago had talked about, and there's kind of this consensus that 300 is a real magic number for indies. And from my experience, I mean, I think 100 is problematic because to me, 100, your, your cost per unit is just so high that 100 is something you're doing if you're only using the records for marketing purposes. It's the same as sinking $1,000 into a billboard. It's There's no profit to be made. It's just about 
appeasing a small group of vinyl collectors and then having all of these free copies that you can give away. 200 has been pretty comfortable, but you're still selling them at a cost per unit where there's not a lot of margin. And it's, um, it's you really have to have a few distributors in place to speak for 20 or 50 or 100 copies. 300, it just seems yeah. like, okay, I have my distributor takes 50. This other retail, five retail stores take 10 each. And then I can sell 50 to 100 on my own. And then I'll, I'll save 50 to 100 for the long tail. So can you tell me like this little mindset here? It makes sense. Um, when we look at the number of requests coming in via the site on the web quarter yeah. you were talking about, um, we see the most amount of requests come in for 100, but mm. the least amount of people actually proceeding with it. That's right. Compared to 100 <laughs> to 300, which is super interesting. Yeah. So, so then what we did was on the website, when you're working through the quota, um, we were so anti-hard selling because that's sleazy. But what we do is, you know, if someone has the 100 unit quote in front of them that they built, and it was like, hey, just so you know, right over here at 200, it's actually this amount of dollars per unit. Mm. Um, and it's you know, it's a substantial difference yeah. per unit. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how we've been thinking about it. Um, before is just, well, give people their options because you're right at a hundred. Um, I wouldn't say it's prohibitive, but it's a challenge because all of your fixed setup costs are divided by such a small number, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, with the small run program, we've done a couple of things. Um, we've done some experiments on the digital printing side that we've done a little bit before, but didn't push as much as we did recently. Um, one example is the center labels. Um, the center label paper and ink, basically the whole thing, um, you need to, um, uh, there needs to be research and development that goes into those choices. It's not just like that anything will work. You know, I can't like rip out a page of a magazine and use that paper. Sure. Like that has to, it has to be able to withstand the stress of the pressing process and the heat of the oven that the labels get baked in before sure. they go to press, yeah. right? So, yeah. Digital ink, like we had tried and it didn't work before. Um, so we we tried a couple of other methods um, in the digital printing space um, and we got to a positive result where we found that actually, you know, um, using like, you know, um, like UV ink, you know, not toner, that that, that actually worked. Mm -hmm. And so then we thought, wow, we can actually reduce the price of the <clears throat> center label um, pretty substantially and just pass on the savings, you know. Um, same thing with the on the jackets. Anyway, basically, um, what I'm getting at is that we've tried to find ways to reduce the cost of the 100, 200, and 300 to get more people acclimatized to making vinyl, um, to just like lower the barrier to entry. Sure. Um, and so we have these packages now that we're going to debut in the next couple of days, actually. Wow. Um, no exclusive. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know what it's really, so maybe it won't be exclusive, but. Um, on the 100, it's um, I'll speak in US dollars because that's top of mind. Sure. Uh, it's $12.99 for 100. At 200, it is closer to $8. No, it is $8.50. And then at 300, it's $6.66 per unit. Wow. Um, and we also beat up FedEx um, <laughs> uh, into submissions so that we have really cheap prices that are like a fixed cost going to anywhere in the States. So like $100, $200, and $300. So like a buck a unit for shipping. Wow. Um, wow. 
so anyway, like we've been putting a lot of energy into this program and figuring out how to make sure it runs well and how to um, ensure that all the turnarounds are six weeks. Mm. Um, and so that's the concept. It's these like small run um, packages we're calling Express. Press being the pun there. Okay. That, uh, I'm trying cute. to. Cute. That's cute. Uh, sponsored and, yeah. sponsored by Elon Musk and, and X is that like is that where you get it <laughs> no. from no <laughs> oh X no yeah. no no the E X is in lowercase okay and the press is okay in, so we're sure yeah diminishing the Musk okay. <laughs> um, yeah exactly um, that's good so yeah yeah anyway so we're 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 getting set to release those into the market and we we think that's going to be the cheapest price available for those 12.99 yeah that's really cool and i mean the thing i like about 100 is like i've done some per, i've done some experimental releases i've done some acoustic releases or a live release and i just don't think i could move the traditional 200 and 300 that i'm comfortable with like on a flagship record um but i still wish i could have done it on vinyl you know and so these are kind of those things where it's like it's going to cost me, like, I think I can make it work. I think I can sell maybe 20 or 30 and to pay for this fun little thing, you know? So I love that. I love that idea. Yeah. And it's very pared down. Uh, you know, it's black vinyl. So, you know, we're not offering, right. you know, two cups, half and half with splatter. Okay. Eventually we want to make more flexible sure. and we'll aim to do that like yeah. early next year. Um, but yeah. Uh, another interesting thing to think about with these packages is actually that there's no test pressings. It's test waived oh. as part of that 100, 200, 300. Oh. We've had some very interesting conversations about um, about that that strategy. Um, and so anyway, that might be interesting for okay. listeners. Should I Let's talk about that for a second. Yes, this is a well. This is a, a, a podcast for nerds, by the way. So don't uh, don't feel like you have to skip over that part. Uh, okay, that's very interesting. I'm a huge fan of test pressings for a couple reasons. I think they're yep. like historic yep. items. They're one of one or one of five or one of ten or whatever. I have some from bands that I love that have given to me as a gift or or I you know found them on eBay whatever uh, I also have been super successful with selling my test pressings for. It's, mm -hmm. The test pressing I get in three months before the record comes out, I'll sell one of them for a hundred bucks. That they get shipped three right. to six months before the record comes out to one person. Right. That always right. sells within a few minutes, and then on release day, I can sell the other ones for fifty bucks. So it it takes a huge right. bite out of the my manufacturing cost right. because of these fans that I'm so grateful for. So. I missed, um, that's a little bit sad about that. But also tell me, you guys do digital test pressing. So are you still going to play it back for the artists and they can listen to the WAV file? Well, not for these packages with okay. that price point specifically, because the digital test pressings, you have to make physical test pressings and then record them digitally. Okay, so, so there's no difference. Not, yeah. The only cost, yeah, the only cost saving there is that you're not paying to ship them, you know, which is like 40 US sure. dollars okay. on a few day. Um, but it does you know, take. You're also sort of like saving time with them. Yeah, four to yeah, maybe but, three to four weeks, right? Of approval, shipping, and stuff, which is nice. Yeah, and you know, it's like it, it, you know, if 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 you're in, I don't know, broken social scene, and there's twelve of you or something, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like passing a digital file to everyone is easier than trying to get everyone together, whoever yeah. the stakeholders are for yeah. pressing. But but this is actually something different. Um, so uh, GZ is our parent company. Mm -hmm. You know that. Yep. They have um, developed some custom software called AQA. And the AQA system, what it does is, um, you know, um, 
nerd fans of the podcast will um, <laughs> be into this part of it. So, um, so um, you make two copies of the record, be it test pressings or final copies. And what you do is that um, with these two copies, you 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 um, you put them in the AQA system. So it's a computer system with eight turntables on it, right? <laughs> and um, so you have, you know, um, yeah. So it's sort of you know, sort of octopus like yeah, in, yeah. Its, <laughs> <laughs> in, in its physical appearance. Um, uh, and um, you take, let's say, um, uh, the. A side of the first record and the A side of the second record, right? So these are two records from the same run. Yeah. And what the system does mm -hmm. is that um, when you record it in real time, um, each of these, um, the system compares the two of them as a waveform along with the waveform of the digital master. And with those three waveforms, what it can do is analyze the differences and point to all types of anomalies and grade them in terms of them being like distracting or non-distracting or minor. And it doesn't remove the actual audio quality engineer from listening to the record. It just points them in the directions of things they need to make decisions about. So um, that's an important thing to mention in the sense that like catching anomalies, like serial issues, so serial issues being like it happens on A1 30 seconds in on both of these copies, aha, there's something wrong with the metalwork. And so there's just like a faster, more objective way of actually discovering these things, meaning less things are leaking out of the process. And it's comparing it to the digital file. So saying, oh, that's an anomaly, but it was in the digital file in some yeah, cases. And also, correct. And also there's something called eccentricity too. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term as it relates to records. You no. probably are, but I mean, so let's say you punch the stamper slightly off center and the record is going in and out a bit, uh -huh. right? So that it's actually, the record is off center and it's sort of, you know, um, making these wow and flutter sure. sort of sounds. Okay. Um, the system can compare that to the digital master to see uh, how far out it is. Uh, so there's other benefits to that too. Anyway, all that to say that this is how we're quality controlling, you know, the final product leaving the plant. And this is how GZ has been um, quality controlling um, the test pressings as well. And what it means is that there's a, actually like a, a much tighter QC process around the final product. Um, and, um, you know, if when we're making test pressings, if GZ catches it at that moment, they're going to like, you know, um, uh, ax it and then make new ones. Through this process and through experience and also data collection, um, the uh, test pressing approval rating is uh, close to 97%. And I've seen actually like graphs and data to um, wow. affirm that. So compared means, to what? I think like, well, it's 97% in the fact that 3% of test pressing claims um, are actually um, uh, uh, um, acknowledged that there was some issue some like operator failure or something like that that but would actually require us to then redo what, it. What was that number before you implemented this digital system is what I'm uh, asking. That's a good question. I don't actually okay. have that data. That's so fine. We're that's just a, sort of focusing but on it's the cool. That, it's yeah, very no, cool. Question. Yeah. It's a great no. question. Yeah, yeah. I should, I, I, I should dig into that. Anyway, no, none of this like totally negates the idea of making test pressings. But when we look at that, like at the sort of bigger picture, and we can see that for, you know, the 100, 200 and 300 runs where, you know, again, there's going to be a lot of people who aren't as familiar with the process. 
who, you know, you hand test pressings to them and you say, this is on you, pal. You better listen, <laughs> yes. be careful. Yeah. You know, you, you, it's intimidating. you do end up engaging. Yeah. You, like you do end up engaging in a lot of sort of like, um, uh, lengthier conversations that, um, you know, are actually like fully resolvable outside of making, um, you know, new, new metal work. Yeah. So, um, we think that, you know, for, for these low run packages, given that 97% approval rating, that we feel very confident about offering a really fast turnaround. Um, and that for the 3% of issues that we discover, we'll just remake the records. You know, yeah. we sort of built that into a buffer. Now, it, you know, if I were making like a, let's say, you know, a more, um, like a, a release with a higher quantity, 300, 500, 1,000, et cetera, um, I would get test pressings, okay. right? And there just might be more sort of like, um, I don't know. I mean, it's like, it's a bigger quantity. It's a bigger investment. So maybe more insurance is, is important there. And, and, and as you say, you want to have test pressings to sell. Yeah. So know, for, are you for, saying that yeah. you, that people at any quantity can now opt to waive the test pressing option? Well, that was always the case. Right. But it okay. seems like, you know, for, for the low run program where we want to make it really accessible and easy for people and keep the timeline ticking yeah. and also so vouch for the quality that this is like an entirely safe thing to do, which I think is actually kind of progressive. I think it will actually, like, I think in a lot of cases outside of when people, you know, for, for small runs outside of when they're actually selling and marketing the test pressings, I think this is actually um, a way to, um, you know, sort of like achieve that more spontaneous sort of thing that you yeah, were talking about sure. and also have people have a more affordable package for people. That's right. And yet still have that peace of mind because I know like I've waived, you know, digital proofs of, of the artwork and stuff just being like, I think it'll be okay. You know, and so, uh, and knowing that there's been a lot of times where you guys have, whether it's been uh, an artwork or it's actually been on the digital file or, or, or sorry, the audio file where you guys have emailed me back and said, just so you know, this track seems like quieter than the others or like there is some sort of like adjusting that you guys are doing for us. For for me, it hasn't showed up on an invoice. And so it's kind of nice that you catch it instead of just like, even though you know it's gonna be a problem, pressing it to a test pressing and then me discovering that issue. So that happened on the, on the last release. I had a little instrumental track that was too quiet. Right, and that's the thing is that like the, the tracks are being analyzed in the cutting room before cutting. And so if there's a track list issue or some other oddity, we're pointing it out. Yeah. When we go to make the records, we have this AQA system that, you know, with very fine precision, sorry, yeah, um, is able to pinpoint um, audio anomalies for an engineer to, so, you know, like if we're doing our job there um, and the 97% data continues as it should, then yeah, for these small run packages, it seems like a total no brainer. Um, to offer it to people this way. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation about the imp the importance of vinyl and quick the quickness of vinyl as it relates to an artist's creativity and their creative outfit output because this this project and I'm not self promoting here I don't care but this project it, it's just personal to me because it was a spontaneous thing that has never happened to me and probably will never happen again but the act of pressing it to vinyl made it feel real I think just uploading it to Bandcamp. Uh, and that's why I honestly think vinyl is so popular is, is uploading it to Bandcamp or even to Spotify. That can be done quickly. That's no problem. But to have that come back, I just felt like really legitimized what I had done 
and cemented yeah. it. And it just was this whole, it was this whole piece that really felt powerful. It, it just, it in, inspired me as a creative. It's nice to hear that artists and labels still connect to it that mm. way. I mean, you put out so many releases now and you still feel that. Mm. And like, yeah, there's like, I, I, I think that there's a ceremony to the vinyl release that, you know, it, 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 it that is not like fully actualized on the digital side of things. As you say, like, you know, you're uploading something to Bandcamp and it's not meaningless by any stretch, but it doesn't have that kind of like, you know, sort of like, you know, break the line across no. the yes, end that's of the right. on type of feel to it that the vinyl release does. Cause yes. it's like, well, this is like a real document of the music now, you know, it's like a physical yeah. thing that is now, you know, sort of like, um, well, as you say, like legitimizing the music to some extent. I mean, vinyl clearly is not the only way to legitimize your music. Yeah, no, um, I know. But, and that's a kind of an elitist but, thing to say. Yeah, impact. yeah. But it does feel like, you know, vinyl or it didn't happen. It, to me, it's like, I've got to... <laughs> I, I know that's so elite to say, but it, it's... And it could be cassettes too. I get the same feeling from cassettes. So I'll just throw that out there as well. I almost do. I almost do. I mean, like if, if I... So I will listen to streaming services to figure out what I love yep. and then I will buy what I love on vinyl. Agreed. And I've Same. done that a few times on with cassettes, yep. although sparingly. And it just doesn't it doesn't get me out of bed the same way, you know? I agree. It doesn't it doesn't I agree. But but for others it does. I, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And yeah, same I, with CDs. I don't need to diminish it. Yeah, it's, it's just for me. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I know what you. I totally know what you mean because I, I order the same ones you do, and they come in the mail, and and yeah, it's a different feeling. I want to talk to you about vinyl. This is this, and I'm so excited about this QA process that happens beforehand because I remember when this record came in, um, and I, I think I talked to you about this before, and I, I had a great chat years ago with someone from Ghostly about how nerve wracking it is to get a shipment from the from the plant and cutting right. the seal and taking out a record. And my wife was standing by and I was like, don't talk to me, please. Like I'm sweating buckets here. And, <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, I take out the record. And I remember the very first record I put on and there was a, a noise, like a not a nice noise somewhere on the record. And I was like, my mm -hmm. heart sank and I ran to the box mm -hmm. and I quickly opened another one exact same spot and the sound wasn't there and i was like thank god and even just like right. even just like dusting that record and the sound was gone and it was like okay phew for all right flip it over the songs are there and now i can finally enjoy it you know that that feeling is like i don't know if other people have, feel that feeling same thing with artwork too um gosh and i'm not like worried that you guys have made a mistake i'm often worried that i've made a mistake and um so it comes at a cost. Having those big physical items come at a stress cost. But then once yeah, it's done. I can understand the anxiety. There's so much wrapped up in it. I mean, not, not only is it all the money spent, because you know, you're spending a thousand or more and not a hundred yeah. or more. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. It's just it's just all this build up to the, you know, like the actual event. Um, I can understand that. But yeah, like I think that that is um well, you've got to come to the plant and see that this like AQA software, it's a cool thing to look at. We've made a video on the site that's um, more animation based because we thought that was just like a more engaging and interesting way mm. to um, to understand the, 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 the system and, and the process. And, you know, again, it's like not the kind of thing where it's like, okay, well, now this is all like AI and machine learning. Yeah. You know, this is 
this is a tool to help the people listen to figure out where those issues are going to be. See, because the, you know, the thing is like, you know, if, if, you know, the same pop occurs on like the, you know, a very, you know, sparse, lush, you know, Billie Eilish ballad or something like that compared to like, you know, the new Carcass album or something, where which is like a grindcore onslaught. Um, this happens across plants and all uh, across the industry. There's a decision made based on how distracting or noticeable that that, ah. that pop might be. And there's all kinds of factors there. It's like, you know, um, what what uh, effect was used? You know, so if it's like three types of splatter, we're expecting more noise. Mm -hmm. um, if it's a very quiet, uh, if it's very quiet material and the side is very long, then we're going to have to cut it quietly to make it fit safely, which has the, you know, um, illusion of a higher noise floor. So there's like a lot of subjective factors that you apply in the quality room in addition to like objective standards, you know, where like, physical issues like, you know, warpage or a scratch are measured in millimeters and there's a strict tolerance there. So, wow. Yeah. Anyway, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it, there's, it's like magic and science, like in that quality room, it's not, it's not strictly one or the other. Well, and I know that you still have a human being who's going to see these flags, these red flags, yellow flags and, and address them. And, and that's so important because, you know, if you catch someone on a Monday morning after a busy weekend, they might miss something. They're human beings. And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, I think that's yeah. great. I think that's really encouraging to hear. And like headphone fatigue too. Yep. That's a real thing, right? Yep. Yeah. You know, absolutely. If you're listening on headphones for eight hours a day, like you, you know, your, your brain tends to filter some things out after a while. For sure. Let's talk about bands. Uh, I know, I know you're at a different place. Uh, in, in the whole vinyl chain, but what are some factors that help an indie band sell their records that you've noticed? Like, is there a common denominator that you've seen in artists or labels who do a good job at getting rid of their units? That's a very good question. I remember the last time we talked, we were speaking about um, variant exclusives mm -hmm. and both, you know, I, and I think I made the comment that I felt like the majors were far ahead of the indies in that regard. Hmm. Um, and I feel like that's changed over time. I think that like there are, you know, there are stores like, you know, Newbury Comics and, you know, other sort of like ones that I sort of am failing to recall off the top of my head now. Yeah. Um, Maybe grimy. Where, where like, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where, you know, you make a variant exclusive to them or a variant exclusive to the store. Um, and so anyway, I feel like that's continued to prosper since we spoke. The other thing is, I think like, um, we've been thinking a lot about uh, fulfillment too, about how to get records into the hands of buyers easier and if we could participate there. So maybe this isn't quite answering the question, but it is something we've been working on too. Um, we're a Canadian plant. You're a Canadian guy, so you yeah, know this. Yeah. Um, but, uh, maybe to some of the listeners, they're not familiar with our geography. We also have a plant in Nashville as well. And we're thinking about how to leverage that as far as um, making it uh, accessible and cheap to get records out to record buyers directly. Um, and so we're going to introduce this like media mail service where the where we're going to send out the records to our sister plant there and then have them picked up by USPS to deliver to record fans individually. So that's huge. Anyway, I guess. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I, like I, I think the fulfillment and e-com side, I think like, you know, artists and labels who are more sophisticated in that kind of realm, um, tend to see broader 
successes, especially since, you know, distro is obviously critical. But if you've got a great, like, you know, e-com and fulfillment uh, thing going for yourself, then those are records that you're selling at a higher um, at a higher price point, mm. you know, um, as opposed to wholesale. So um, artists figuring out a good mix of both of those things, I think, like, you know, tend to tend to come back for reorders. Well, fulfillment is so key because I, I the absurdity of when I send a, you know, when you ship me right now, we're, we're nearby so I can pick them up. But there are times where you're pressing a record in, let's say, California, and then you ship it to you and then you sell it back to someone back in California, you know, and, and you now have to ship it back. So it's not absurd for a record to cross the continent a few times just to get to the end user. And that is stacking up all of these shipments. And because I'm in Canada, we have a lot of international orders. So I have to charge something ridiculous like $25 US to ship it to Japan. Yeah. I do that all the time. Yeah. I feel bad about it. It's it's about the same price I'm charging for the record itself. Um, but what what else can I do, you know? And so that is really interesting to hear because I know America has a better, a little bit better of a, a domestic shipping than we do. But um, the amount, and I think from an environmental standpoint too, it's better that instead that they're not shipping right. back there, then back and all across. That is really cool to hear. Yeah. Yeah, we're exploring what we're going to do about Europe too. But I've talked to some record labels who say, if you can figure that out for me, I would love you forever. Yes. Because of what you're yes. talking about, that it's just so expensive to get records out there. Um you know, our parent companies in Europe, there's another uh, related company um, that uh, that is also in the fulfillment space there. Just feels like there's puzzle pieces for us to, to you know, put together in that sense. Um, and yeah. so I feel like that could be, you know, that that's going to be a, um, a real direction for us next year. Absolutely. That is so cool to hear. Uh, let's talk about price for a second, because... I feel like I've been kind of underpricing my records for a while because I've always just kind of mm. set that $20 mark. Well, let's talk in US funds here, yeah. but you know, I kind of always yeah. just thought $20. I don't know why, because like merch tables, it was always $10 for CDs, $20 for record. You think in like what people yeah. have in their wallets. And and now obviously us as customers, we go to a, a record store. Any new release from merge or sub pop is going to be probably $39.99 now, you know, that might be mm. in Canadian and, and, uh, but still it's, it's a high priced item. And so I feel like some of us indies need to maybe push the price up a little bit to help with yeah. create a margin just to begin with. So do you have any thoughts on like price? Like where, where should, would, should we be pricing them? I don't think it's right to maybe follow the major indies model or to follow the major yeah. label models. I think there are some ridiculous prices out there, but um, any insights to where we should be pricing our records if we're doing 200 to 300? Not a very informed one. Okay, so that's I'll fine, just, that just your opinion. <laughs> but I was, <laughs> I, 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 was just, I was in New York um, yesterday, um, just in like a family thing, and I snuck away to go to some record stores um, you know, while well, they went to a Broadway play or something, Good I don't know. You. And, um, and you know, I, I, I was, I was sort of like, you know, there were some records I wanted to get, and um, one of them was like a single LP, and it was selling for forty US. And I did the conversion in my head, and I was like, I can't. Like, it just seemed like it was like, yeah, harder for me to justify um, that that purchase. And then I found the same record elsewhere for you know about. 30 bucks. And I was like, okay, that feels like about mm. right. And that was 30 US, you know, okay. and even then, yeah. like, I felt like, 
okay, I can like basically uh, tolerate this, yeah. you know? Um, so from an unf uninformed perspective, because I don't know what goes into, you know, marketing campaigns and mm -hmm. other sort of auxiliary costs outside of strict manufacturing, because sure. there's other considerations. And of course you have like record stores needing to make a sustainable margin and distros. Yeah, and yeah, that's fair. I know a little less about that. Um, yeah, but you know, it kind of feels to me, yeah, like when I'm buying something for thirty bucks, that that kind of feels like within a tolerable range. Um, personally, I, I I also think from the manufacturing perspective, um, it's sort of almost obvious to see where this is coming from because we had to raise our price over the pandemic like three different times, and it felt like shit because <laughs> every time we did it, you know, it was just like here it comes again. And it was because of the things we were talking about earlier in the conversation, you know, like um, board products that just weren't of, like the things were happening, like the center label stock that we were using, the mill who was providing it said, well, we're basically sold selling out of everything because people are just buying paper and board for packaging products that are going to sell on Amazon and everything is flying off the shelves. So why don't we actually just like deprioritize the paper stocks that are not making us as much money. Oh. And so we would then be overnight forced to use more expensive, you know, stock. Yeah. And we were in a race like everyone else. Like, and so that's part of the reason why we had to keep raising prices. And like I said, all that stuff is gone now. Yeah. Um, in, in my experience, you know, I'm seeing some vinyl compound prices starting to come down. We just acquired back in May a vinyl compound manufacturing company and added that to our group of three plants and now there's four companies as part of the gz north america umbrella and making compound ourselves and doing it domestically meant that it was cheaper for us and so we lowered our price by 15 cents us per disc in september i saw that i got that um, email that you guys lowered your price that was a weird email to get it was weird right and i think plants <laughs> like do this now right yeah. like if not us who else because if if some labels will continue, like if we continue to do that and some labels don't react accordingly, that's none of our business, I guess. Yeah. But, um, you know, um, the, the paper and board prices have not come down the mm. way that the compound has. And so that one, like, it feels like all those, you know, um, it feels that industry is really clawing on to the, you know, margins yeah. that, you know, they were, they were not used to making pre-pandemic. And I don't know as much about, you know, the insider workings of those. So maybe someone in that industry will say I'm being unfair, but I have not seen the board prices drop to the extent where we can say, okay, now we're going to lower the price on the print too. But it, but, but that's part of our mandate next year is sure. to try and find out like, can, can we actually reduce prices without slashing our margin? Because if we slash our margin, then we just have a less sustainable that's business. Right. But that's right. yeah. if we find cost savings and then we lower the price accordingly, then that seems like something that should happen. And then maybe it'll have the trickle down effect of records becoming, you know, 20 or 25 instead of, you know, 30, 35 or something like that. So you're talking, we were talking earlier about the issues that the artwork can give, not just us making the, the, mm -hmm. the artwork, but also you guys as well. And then the board prices and stuff. Do you ever see a future where we can separate the record, which by the way, contains the music, but can we separate the, the record from the artwork? Are they just too married together in the history of vinyl? But is there a way, I know I've seen people in those plastic sleeves, a, a lot of dance labels will just do paper. Yeah. But that for me as a music collector, I, I don't love that. Uh, the artwork is so important. So, but is there a future, do you think? We're having an internal conversation about that. Um, 
Uh, Ian, who's on our uh, indie team, uh, he's been really championing that thing that you're talking about, which mm -hmm. is a blank white die cut record jacket. Yeah. Um, you know, put that in the bag, put a sticker on it. I, I, I think it's, it is interesting for the like, uh, electronic and dance side of things. Um, it's, it's, it's a little harder for me to see like a lot of bands adopting that because the art is such a critical, like, um, piece of the physical experience of buying and interacting with vinyl. Um, but I mean, there definitely is a market for that kind of thing. Um, I just wonder how expansive it is, you know? Yeah, it's a good point because there's this alleged quote, which I'm sure we can all argue with about that 50% of American vinyl buyers don't have own a record player. I doubt it, but whatever. Um, oh, you doubt that? Yeah. 50%. Well, first of all, how'd they get such a nice round number? But I, I don't know. <laughs> I may, may, I guess maybe if if a, like I'm, uh, Taylor sold a million right last year of of midnights so it's do all a million of those don't have a record player I don't know yeah I do doubt that I I told this I told this huh. anecdote recently I was at this record huh. store at McMaster University you know where that is but there was a like the guy who travels around to the universities and does sells records used records and this place was packed at nine in the morning with twenty year olds spending hundreds of dollars on old records. And I'm like, people are buying records. It is crazy. Right. And young people, right. it is crazy. And they right. all have turntables. And and so right. anyway, what was my point? I'm so, I'm off now. But I, I just going back to the artwork is I do think that if there are people who are buying it without a turntable, I don't think they would be buying it in a, in a just a white sleeve. Right, good point. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's for a community of like vinyl heads that, um, probably exist outside of electronic music as well. Mm. I mean, like a lot of rap singles would, you know, come that way too, like DJ singles. I think that there's, there's definitely a market for it and it should be explored. And maybe that would make for more affordable records too. But I think you're right to point to that 50% or 42. Wait, or do you, do you agree with it? You think it's real? Um, I don't, I, that's interesting you say that because I've never really sort of like mentally disputed it. I more had an existential sort of wrestling match in my brain to be like, is that, is that a terrible number or is that yeah. fine? <laughs> um, and I, I, I really try and, and sort of like reduce any notions of gatekeeping that I find myself having. It's one of those things like an intrusive thought where yeah. I'm like out. Yeah, I know. And so, you know, I my, know. My, my, my first thought is, you know, oh no, if only half the people who are buying records have a turntable, how likely is it that they will continue to buy records if they're not actually using them? Good point. And then I tried to put myself in the mindset of someone, um, maybe like a Taylor Swift fan, like you're talking about, who's buying the record for wholly different reasons, mm -hmm. you know, because they're connecting with the artist because they picked it up at a show and it means something to them. And mm -hmm. I guess I just maybe for like a younger generation of, um, like vinyl fans, um, maybe they're not interacting with it in the exact same way that like you or I are, and maybe that's okay. You know? Yeah, so, yeah like, that's fair. I mean, as, yeah, you know, as long like as long as our industry has like a good, healthy, beating pulse, like you know, um, then I think that um, we'll all find you know our ways to participate and enjoy it. Yeah. So, so I, I've sort of gotten past the fact that that's a bad statistic. And now just thinking like, yeah, you know, I feel like people are just sort of like, I don't know, they, they want it as like a souvenir of their experience or 
as something that this says something about their identity. You know, it's the reasons why people collect all kinds of stuff. And pe people collect things that they, you know, I, how often when people are buying books, when they're collecting those, are they reading them every day? The, the stats for those, for the, yeah, the stats are insane. Like it's like 80, 90% of books are, are never finished. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, I mean, how is vinyl actually really that different? I mean, totally you have a collection of something um, and you're 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 buying it out of some form of like expression of your interests, what, like you do with books. Right? What percentage of pianos in people's living rooms are played? <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh no, I have a piano in my. I have a digital piano in, yeah. in my living room. There you that go. Hasn't been played in a month. There so, you go. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting though. Here's let me, here's another stat I want to ask you about. Uh, the, and I, and I, I'm not a journalist, so I don't stand behind these numbers. But I read it in the Economist. But we have 160 million records that were manufactured last year allegedly they they and i don't know if that's worldwide or, or north america uh, uh, there was a demand for uh, upwards of 400 million i don't know if that's true either but let's say we manufacture uh, 160 million okay. we've sold 45 million last year so potentially there's 110 120 missing records and so my question is Again, mm -hmm. stupid. I don't know where those numbers are, so I don't don't hold me to it. Okay. My question though is, are people pressing too many records, i.e., major labels, or are there indie artists who are pressing records that shouldn't be pressing records that are not yet at that stage in their career? I know that's a dumb question to ask you and your job, but I know you're an honest person, so you'll answer it. And we we do have a lot of records in garages, places, so. What are your thoughts on that? Is there uh, maybe those records are being sold by indies, and maybe it's majors, or maybe maybe we shouldn't be pressing vinyl? I, I I don't think it's all majors by a long shot. I think what happened was, and I feel like I'm on very confident ground saying this because I have visited like so many record labels in the last year and asked them about their experience. Um, because since the pandemic receded, I've been able to travel again, yeah. and I want to like get you. out from behind yeah. my computer yeah. and say thanks to record labels with us. Um, and I've heard from several uh, um, medium-sized indies that they overordered last year, hmm. and it makes sense because they like take yourself back to 2021 or 2022. Let's say 2022, where getting a record made on average across the industry would take eight to twelve months. Now let's say you have like a new release or a catalog item that's like, you know, really popular. Um, to do a reorder would probably take the same amount of time, another eight months, right? Oh, but you know, you've got the metal work done. Well, it doesn't matter. You're just waiting in front, you know, in yeah. a traffic jam lineup to get in front of a record press like right. a new order. So so basically what I'm saying is, you know, if it took you eight months to get five thousand made and it would take you sixteen months to get another five thousand after that. And the record seems like it's got life to it now. You're going to order ten thousand today, oh, right? In, yeah. in that environment, and a lot of record labels um, were put in a situation where that felt like the necessary thing to do because they didn't want to have the release lose steam and be out of inventory. And because records were flying off the shelves in those years, it was a very safe bet. So now that the world is kind of like I don't know. Uh, had some sort of, you know, correction to the mean, I guess, in many ways. And in many ways, obviously, it hasn't. Um, there are labels that are kind of like stuffed with um, inventory at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Now, like, 
Yeah. So, so anyway, I, I, I think that's the story of this year. Maybe your statistics are from last year. So maybe my, that's what I, they are little... 2022 numbers. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so, uh, you know, but, um, in that sense, maybe like there is some mix and match of that. Um, but maybe actually, even if that's not related, I feel like it's an interesting thing to meditate on because I feel like that's been the story of 2023, for the vinyl industry um, overall, yeah. is that the volume has been less. And I think that it seems like records are still selling reasonably well, but that the labels have just like a lot of overstock at the moment. And that is not exclusive to the major labels. Do you predict, and we're getting close to the end of 2023, do you predict that, like, I think it's every year for the past 20 years almost, that the vinyl sales have gone up certainly in dollar amounts do you think that will continue do you think well 2023 we'll see an, a continued bump i've been hearing that it was the best record store day yeah you know in history yeah. someone told me that um i've also heard like bits of information that you know the growth will still be there but it will be like low double digits like 10 percent yeah i don't think the vinyl I don't think the manufacturers are seeing that. I think that um, it's a more competitive environment. There's more plants now yeah. because a lot of record pressing plants started over the pandemic when there was a real problem to solve. And the same problem doesn't exist today because the turnaround times are reduced. There's enough capacity for everybody. So there's a bit of a disconnect in terms of like sales in the real world. And okay. then on the manufacturing side, mm. record pressing plants are like under with their capacity utilization, including us. Wow. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I'd be really interested to hear more yeah. from people on the, on the retail side um, than the manufacturing side, because I know what the manufacturers are saying. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So there does need to be an equilibrium that hopefully we can get to, and maybe, maybe we'll see. Are you, uh, this is a dumb question, but are you long on vinyl? Like, do you think, I mean, it's just been going and growing and growing quantity wise. Uh, Revenue-wise, I tell you, Paul, that experience at McMaster, seeing those kids who were, when I got into vinyl late in life, who were maybe five years old, like to see these people and they were obsessed with digging for stuff. And I remember there was this young girl and like, just like super cool looking trendy and she's digging for vinyl and she's got her headphones on. And this guy comes up to her and taps her on the shoulder and starts to like, they know each other and starts to like flirt with her and, and is like, he's like, do you even own a turntable? And she's like, totally know, like bro. brushing him off. Like, please leave me alone. I'm working here. And she's got a stack of records. Like she's spending two or $300. And I was just like, I couldn't believe what I was seeing was this, like these people being so young and so interested in this medium. It was just so exciting for me. It was so encouraging. And anyway, I just feel like that's like one silly anecdote, but I just feel like this thing has legs. What what are the stats on turntable sales year year over year? Sorry, I don't because know. I think uh, that, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I, I feel like I should know that too, but I, I, I think that that can tell a story. Yeah. I mean, as much as only 50% of people own a turntable, whatever, but I, I am interested to see the, the numbers on turntable stats because if that number is growing, it does show m more people are getting involved. Um, well, you can't have the turntable stats. Sorry to interrupt. It can't have the turntable stats because they're coming from garage sales and from Facebook Marketplace. I, you know I, what I mean? That's how yeah. do you measure that? You could measure Crosley's on Amazon, which do sell really well, but 
it, I think that'd be a hard thing to get. But can you say the same thing about record sales? Because yeah. A lot okay. Of good point. Good point. So too. I bet you they could build that in. You're right. If if you yeah. were yeah, if Audio Technics could say we sold this many units, somebody would be able to estimate how many units were bought from yard sales. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Perhaps. Perhaps. Good point. Um. But yeah, I guess getting back to the small room program, like it is kind of a thought to be like, um, how do we like broaden the floor or mm. lower the floor? Yes. And get more people in. And like if if 100 records are 12.99 or whatever 200 or 850, um, is that the number that that's actually pushing a band to think like okay I can do this mm. you know and therefore you have like just more people making records and it just becoming like a thing that I don't know like a newer generation feels like is within their means yeah um, so yeah like I guess like it seems like you know the kids it seems like the kids are interested yeah but we need to just make sure that it's like accessible like hopefully on the retail side hopefully on the manufacturing side right um and the reduction of costs in a still inflationary environment is i think like where the industry really needs to be focused on you know um if we can make records cheaper through things like the small room program and the vinyl compound and maybe lowering our print prices next year which we're dedicated to doing um, then maybe it can like, you know, um, continue to be accessible for people. It has to be accessible essentially, right? In yeah. order for people to continue being interested. Wow. This has been so much fun. So much fun. I, I could do this for hours. I know our audience could do this for hours too, because it is so, it's so interesting. And I, I hope that we've provided some, you know, some problem solving because there, this is something that I think is really desired by a lot of people to go down this road. And it's something they kind of work their way, way towards earning, you know, like to being able to either afford it or to justify it um, because it is something that a lot of people really love. And I'm excited to see younger generations and older generations, by the way, like people in their 50s and 60s are still buying vinyl just as much um, and everybody in between. So I think that's I think that's really, really, really cool. Um, Anyway, thank you, as always, for sharing your wisdom on this topic. I've got another 50 questions, but we'll save it for part three. Part three, man. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's definitely keep rolling. Let's do a part three we'll whenever do. you want. All right. Thank you all for listening. There's so much we covered there, so many interesting little tidbits. And I'm also always encouraged to hear how plants are evolving and in improving the process. And I hope that I spoke on your behalf as uh, small independent record labels, as small independent artists who wanna get into vinyl, who are maybe intimidated by vinyl, where the economics don't work yet. I hope I kind of spoke up for you and, and found out if some of these big plants care about us, if they're working towards us. And I think the answer is yes from today's episode. So a huge thank you to Paul from Precision Pressing and a huge thank you just to Precision Pressing for sponsoring today's episode. Um, they have been a huge supporter of the show for a long time. And so if you're looking for a pressing plant, check out Precision Pressing by going to precisionpressing.com. I feel like there's been a lot of peas in today's episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>